Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. There was a rich man, Pauls. Last week, I told you, we hear about rich people in our, in our context, our society. We, we, we aspire to be like them. We, we want to follow them on social media. We look up to people who have attained a certain amount of wealth. We, we want to know what it is that they did. We want to read their biographies or their autobiographies. We want to read their books, learn about them, right? But in, in this particular context, when you see or read the term rich man, especially in the New Testament, it typically is, has a negative connotation to it. So don't think there was a rich man. Yes, I want to be like him. Think rich man, that's not somebody I want to aspire to be. All right, let's keep reading. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham Abraham, a long way off with Lazarus at his side. And here's what the rich man said. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you receive your good things just as Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us And you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot and neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I I got five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said "They, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if if someone from the dead goes to them, then, then they'll repent. But he told them. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Let us pray. Lord, I I thank you this week like I thank you every week. God, I I thank you for this this opportunity that we get to come and worship and be with one another, Lord. We get to study a word together. And and so today, Lord, I pray that, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I pray today, God, that we... We learn all that we need to learn today, God, not just for head knowledge, but, but, but that it can reach in, in our hearts and, and transform us and change us and make us more like you. And so, Father, my prayer is twofold this morning. Um, I, pray for, I pray for the unbeliever who may be here today, God, if there's one here or, or, or several here, Lord. We, I pray today that they would just hear the good news and resp- respond to it, Lord. I pray um, that they would see your goodness, that they would hear about your goodness, Father, and that they would make a decision to follow you today, God. And for the believer who is here, the person who's walking in a journey of faith and that may be struggling or, or maybe they're thriving and enjoying a relationship with the Lord, God, I pray that you would grow them today. I pray that you would give us godly wisdom, God, that only you can give that, that comes from your word. And so, Father, I just pray your son Jesus would be known today. I pray this sermon would be about him, that it would draw all of us to him today, God, so that we would learn how to live better, that we would live 
to the glory of God. And so, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Thank you for this opportunity to be together. In Jesus' name we pray. The people of God said amen. amen. You may be seated in the Lord's, Lord's presence. From a sermon series, Life Lessons with Jesus, my sermon title this morning is Don't Make, Don't Make, Don't Make the Same Mistake. Don't Make the Same Mistake. I think one of the things that we often that we often do to our own detriment when it, when it comes to the idea or topic of money is that we have this very individualistic, uh, self-centered vantage point when it, when it comes to, to the resources that we have. Um, many of us, if most of us, if we have ever had any bit of money or a job or, or we pay bills and we pay rent or pay a mortgage or uh, pay a car, car note or, or insurance, there, there are times, especially when you're starting, starting out, that, that, that money can be extremely tight. We can find ourselves in a situation where we do everything we can to get from up under what we feel like is a tight spot. We, we want this idea of financial freedom and this idea of financial peace, and that's not, it's not a negative thing, but I think sometimes uh, money is one of those things that keep, keeps us up at night when it doesn't necessarily have to. And I think the anxiety that we and our culture experience with money oftentimes is because we have a wrong perspective about money. And so what I want to do today but at the outset of this sermon is give us a, a bit of perspective. I kind of want to take a 30,000-foot view, a, a, a different vantage point, and, and allow us to see resources and finances from a different perspective. And, and so I want you to know this, that, that if you are here today and you are an American citizen, you, you were born in America You've lived here your whole life. Um, you have 10 times the resources or wealth of someone else living in a different part of the world. I, I would even take it further and say this, that, that you may be surprised if I asked you a poll the audience, what is the global median income? Some of you may probably guess, okay, let me just take, make an educated guess and look at the whole world and maybe it's 20,000, maybe it's 30,000, maybe it's 40,000. Or maybe we would have this perspective, this Americanized perspective of what, what, what the global income would be. But to, to your surprise, the, the global median income is $2,100. $2,100. So, so if, you, if, if you make $40,000 today in the United States of America, you are rich in the world. You are rich in the world. You, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this $40,000 is getting me nowhere. Right. This forty thousand dollars is tight. This this money that I have is not making me feel rich at all. And thank you for telling me that twenty one hundred dollars is the median income. That just confirms that God wants me to move to another country. <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's what your your conclusion is. But but to be honest, the, the poor in the United States are richer than 70 percent of the rest of the people in the world. The poor, the poor, the poor in the United States is 70% richer than people in the rest of the world. And so our perspective, our, our situation, our plight is not as bad as, as we think it is. And so I, I said that to, to say this to you, that, that maybe we shouldn't complain about the money that God has given us, but maybe we should be grateful and thankful for what he's given us. 
our, our situation could be a lot worse than what it is. I think we take for granted that after we leave church, we have a place to go and, and lay our head. So, some of you already know where you're going to take your nap at after church. Some of us have already, you know I'm going here, you know some of us have already made brunch plans with our friends after lunch. That is a luxury that most people in the world do not have. And so I think this morning that we need a reality check, a real reality check, and be appreciative and grateful for what God has given us. No, you may not be rich, but the truth of the matter is if you're here today, you got the church, you have clothes on your back, you ate something this morning, or are you going to eat something after church? God is good to you. You are more blessed than you actually think you are. And, and, and so, 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 so please don't have this, this westernized, individualistic, consumeristic mindset towards, towards money. We need to be grateful for what we have and we need to faithfully manage what we've been given, whether you think it's a little or you think it's a lot. Uh, a British prime minister, prime minister during the Second World War, uh, Winston Churchill once said, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. And we'll see this in this particular parable today. And it's a very interesting parable in Man, it is, it is encouraging, but it, it's somewhat scary at the same time. Uh, when we oftentimes think of riches, we have an idea of what riches, riches are. We, we think of, man, a nice house and a nice car and nice clothes, and, and we think of all the luxuries that we have. And this story kind of talks about a man who had the same situation. The story tells us that there was a rich man. There, there's a rich man in this story who who, who dressed, who wore poor purple and dressed in fine and fine linen. And, and every day he ate lavishly. And so this story tells us about this man and it paints this picture that he has on purple because he dressed like a, like a royal person. He dressed like a, a king. It tells us that he had on fine linens. Literally, that means that he had clothes that was made of the best fabric in the world. If, if I was to modernize this, this guy is, is, is wearing Versace. He's got on, on Gucci. He's, he's wearing, wearing Louis, not, not just on his body, but he has on Louis Vuitton underwear. He, he has on expensive underwear. If, if, if you are a hip-hop fan, Biggie Small says, Coogee down to my socks. Th this is how this guy is, is dressing. He, he's balling out of control. When his wife and his wife go out on date nights, she's wearing a customized Oscar de la Renta dress just to go to date night. Not even the red carpet, just for date night. So, so he has everything. It says that he eats the finest foods. That doesn't mean that he's cooking and going to Publix or going to Kroger's or going to Whole Foods for you ballers. No, no, no. He has a chef that comes in and makes food for he and his family. He makes, the chef makes fine cuisine for him where, where the rest of the people in the world at this time are eating bread, soup, and fruit. This guy is eating the best of the best. You know, some of you, Born in the 2000s, born in the 90s, well, you missed a great show. Most of you are familiar with the show MTV Cribs. Well, when I was a little boy, before there was MTV Cribs, before there was my super sweet 16, before there was that, there was this show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. 
This, the guy that hosted the show, this is British reporter from London, had this beautiful accent. His name was Robin Leach, and he would tell the lifestyles of the rich and famous. I was like, ooh, I want to be rich like this. So he had this, 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 wonderful, this wonderful accent, and, and he would interview wealthy people, and they had yachts and, and mega mansions and uh, planes and private jets, and they had the best of the best foods, and they went on lavish trips, and they had gold-plated toilets and the, the best clothes that money could buy. And I imagine that this man would have been on an episode of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And, and so I love the tagline, at the end of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, Robin Leach would say, champagne wishes and caviar dreams. I imagine this man was living with champagne wishes and caviar dreams. Matter of fact, that wasn't a dream. It wasn't a wish. It was actually his reality. He's balling out of control. He, he has a house. This is mansion, this mansion, and his house is, is gated. His house is gated. And, and so typically, when a person has a gate around their house, the, the gate serves a purpose. The gate serves a purpose to keep things that you don't want outside. Right. And you keep what you want to yourself. And so this man has this this gate. I imagine that he has a a gold plated gate around his house with his initials on the front of the gate. That's what I imagine when I see it. That's what I imagine when I see it. And the reason why I know that he has a gate, because the story tells us that there was a poor man named Lazarus who was laid at his gate. He's laid at the gate of this, this, this poor man. And Lazarus is very different from this man. Now, don't mistake, this is not the same Lazarus that was a friend of Jesus. Lazarus was a common name in those days. So this is a different Lazarus in this parable. But he is the very opposite of the rich man. If we read the text, it tells us that the rich man was covered in purple and fine linen. But this story tells us that Lazarus is covered in sores. It tells us that the rich man, he, he's essentially laid up in his mansion, but Lazarus is laid on the ground at his gate. The rich man ate whatever the, the best of the best was that his chef made for him, but the poor man, Lazarus, just longed to eat the scraps from this rich man's table. The, 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 the rich man probably had a whole staff of chefs and maids and a, and a butler like Jeffrey from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. He probably had people that would come and do things for him. But the Bible tells us that the poor man, the only people that would come to him was that the dogs would come and lick his sores. See, when you, you hear dogs in that story, you don't, you don't get the picture because you think your little cute dogs, you think your little pure, pretty Pomeranian, you think about your little cute little Shih Tzu, and your cute little poodle, and your, your dog with the name of Bingington. And my dog's name is, is Sir Charles, and my dog's name is, is Sir Winston. No, these are some mongrels. These are some scoundrels. These are dogs by the name of Killer, King. <laughs> bruiser, bone crusher, big punisher. You, you didn't live in a certain section if you didn't know a dog named King. The, 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 these are the dogs where the neighbors tell you, oh, he don't bite, he don't bite. If somebody tells you that that dog don't bite, that is a key indication that he is a mass murderer. He bites everybody. If you didn't grow up with a you don't know what I'm talking about. If you don't know a dog named Butch, bruiser, killer, punisher, bone crusher, And this is the type of dogs that are coming to Lazarus. 
And he's so weak, he can't even fend them off from licking his sores. The dogs are just a culmination of Lazarus' misery. He, he's, he's miserable. If there's one word that describes the rich man, he's self-sufficient. He's self-sufficient. He pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anybody. But on the other end, if there's one word to describe Lazarus, it's helpless. He's helpless. He can't, he can't help himself if he wanted to. The Bible says that they, they laid him at his gate, meaning that, that in some way he can't even get around on his own. They put him there in hopes that somebody would help him. He is helpless. He may want to get up, but he can't. I don't know what happened to Lazarus. The story doesn't tell us. It doesn't go into his story. I don't know what happened. I don't know what chain of events brought him there. I don't know if he made a bad decision at some point in his life. Maybe it was a sickness that he had no control over. Maybe he lost a loved one and he's been reeling for many years. Maybe he lost a job. Maybe he got laid off or got fired. I don't know what happened in his life, but all I know is that he is helpless. He may want to do something, but he can't. Have you ever wanted to be more, do more than what you're doing right now? Have you ever been in a situation where you say, if I had more, I would help more? But, 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 I, but, but here I am today. I got this, this, this debt wrapped around my neck. I, I can't breathe. These student loans are absolutely killing me. I don't know what, what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm barely making ends meet. I'm... I'm, I'm Putting all kinds of moves on my finances. I'm going to check cash in places. I'm going to cash advance places, uh, paying high fees. I'm charging up stuff on a credit card because I don't have any cash in my wallet. And so I'm, I'm charging Uber Eats to $60 and they got a, a surcharge on there. And I'm paying $100 for a $10 meal. I'm struggling. I want to help, but I can't. He's deficient in this area of his life. He's totally and completely at the mercy of somebody else. And you notice, I, I notice that in this parable, the only person that doesn't say a word is Lazarus. He's suffering in silence. This is a story of a have versus a have not. There were no similarities between these two men until the equalizer showed up. No, I'm not talking about Denzel. And I'm not talking about Queen Latifah. I think I'm the only person that watches Queen Latifah's version of the equalizer. But that's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the other great equalizer, death. The Bible tells us that one, one, one day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. And it said the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. And, 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 and what's interesting here is that although they, they are polar opposites on earth, they're polar opposites, but when they die, all things are now equal. You know, I've never seen a U-Haul backed up to a cemetery. You know, no matter what this guy accumulated in his life, this rich man, he, he wasn't able to take any of that stuff with him. That it doesn't matter what he accumulated or how much money he had or how much he, he pulled himself up by his bootstraps. It doesn't matter how big his house was. It couldn't help him in death. It, it could not help him in death. And what we see is that death brings a great role reversal in the lives of both of these men. And the decisions that they made while they were alive on earth had a permanent effect on their eternal destiny. Because the decisions that we make in this life matter in the next. When they died, Lazarus was taken to Abraham's side. And the story tells us that the rich man was 
was in torment in Hades. And you're wondering, how, how does this happen? Most people would have heard this. A rich man? There's no way that this could be the outcome for a rich man. How, how did this happen? I'll tell you how it happened. Because while he was alive, he put his trust in his riches alone. He, he was, he was self Sufficient. He, he thought that, that the life he worked for would translate into the next life. He, he thought that he was surely favored by God because of his possessions. He, he was self-reliant. He thought that because he earned his way into a good life on earth, he would earn his way into a good life in heaven. But we know that you can't buy your way into heaven. Salvation is a free gift from God. You can't buy your way in. That's problem number one. Problem number two is... He refused to be generous to others with what he had. The way the text reads that Lazarus was at his gate every day. Whenever the man left his house, he saw a poor man sitting outside of his gate and refused to help him. Now, before you shake your self-righteous head at this rich man, did you stop the last time you saw a homeless person with a sign on the highway? Or did you lock your doors and roll up your windows? Or did you look straight ahead? Or did you pick up your phone and pretend that you were talking to somebody? But every day he saw this man and he refused to help him. And this is an indication for us that he was not not saved. Because you can't love God and see somebody else in need and do nothing about it. If he loved the Lord, there is no way he could have looked at his own life and said, oh, these are my possessions and and mine alone, not to be generous towards anybody else. There's no way he could have loved God and come to that conclusion, but he did. He could have abandoned his love for money, but, but he refused to do so. And so what we see is the rich man suffered a reversal in the afterlife, not because he was rich, but because he was rich and did not look on with compassion for somebody who he could have helped. So let me say this. Let me set you free. The Bible doesn't condemn a person for being rich. Like, right, like, like some of us may have grown up in churches where the theology is if somebody is wealthy or somebody has means, that, that, that means that they, they can't get into heaven. Or, or if somebody is poor, that means that because they are poor, they're going to heaven. Let me tell you something. I've met some very rich people who are extremely generous and giving and love the Lord. I've seen some very rich and wealthy men who lead devotionals at the company that they own. They lead their family in devotionals every morning that love the Lord, that give to godly kingdom, kingdom of, of charities and, and kingdom causes. And I've also met some not so rich people, some poor people who are the stingiest people on earth. And so the reality is, is that riches is not wrong, but what you do with them can be. And so this is a call for us to examine our stewardship. This guy didn't realize that his wealth was on loan from God. He never owned it. It was never his. He did not realize whether he had $100 or $100 million. He was only a steward of God's resources. What he was supposed to do was he was supposed to be rich towards God. And every day he had an opportunity to do these things. He should have used his wealth to help someone like Lazarus. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read a couple scriptures to highlight this for us. First John Chapter 3, verse 17 says this. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? 
James chapter 2, verses 15 through 16 says this. Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say, good, goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and, and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? It's almost like, hey, I'm going to pray for you. Don't, don't, don't help me. Matthew 25, 34 and 46, I think this rings true for the rich man. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was stranger, a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When, when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Then he will also say to those on the left, depart from, from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. and You didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me sick and in prison and you didn't take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? And then he will answer, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do it for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Man, if that doesn't shake you to your core, I don't know what will. We have a responsibility if we are followers of Jesus, if we see somebody in need, we have a responsibility to help them. It has eternal consequences. Being rich is not a disqualifier, but being greedy and stingy is. This was the rich man's sin. His trust in his wealth and lack of compassion resulted in his spiritual poverty. He talks about this place. He went to this place called Hades, which is, biblically speaking, there is some discrepancy whether this place is actually hell or this place is where the unrighteous go. But in this particular context, in this particular parable, it seems like Hades is a place of torment where the unrighteous go. It tells us that that Lazarus, the poor man, he went to Abraham's side. It gives this idea of this, this blessed state that we're in and death. It has this this, this idea of comfort in mind, like, like he's been invited to a feast and given the place of honor when he died. And so, so what, where does this idea of, of, of Abraham's side, if, if you read your Bible um, and you study this idea of justification by faith, we've talked about that before, I don't mean to scare you, right? But, but we've been justified uh, by Christ, right? Not because of what we did, but, but because of him, what he's done, right? And, and so we look at Romans 4, it tells us Abraham is the father of those who believe. He's the father of those who believe because we go back in Genesis, it tells us that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was justified because he trusted and believed God. And so for the Jewish people, they reference Abraham as their father, ethnically first, but also spiritually. And so when we see this idea of him going to Abraham's side, it's this idea of he believed what Abraham believed and now he is in heaven or in this place of peace with Abraham at his side. And maybe some believe that it's synonymous with heaven. So here's what I'm going to do, because I think this is important, an important teaching point. I'm going to give you five things about what happens when we die. Now, before we get there, I have not died before. All right. So 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 this is not Pastor John died and came back. Right. I'm not trying to write a New York Times bestseller. Right. This is not that. But but I want to take from Scripture so that we will have this 
to understand the, the, the life after, all right? And, and so number one, here's what we can, we can gather from this text. Number one is this, is that our bodies go to the grave when we die, but our soul goes to be with the Lord. In, in 2 Corinthians 5 and 8, it says, in fact, we are confident when we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So if you are a believer, when you die, when you die, you go into the presence of the Lord. Your body is in the grave, but your soul, your spirit is with, with the Lord. Se- secondly, that, that's good for us. Secondly, we are conscious when we die. So, so this, this, this goes against this idea of soul sleep. This idea of, of soul sleep with some, 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 even some Christian denominations believe in soul sleep. No, there's no soul sleep. And this flies in the faith, face of the Roman uh, Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Like, like there is this, this middle ground. There's this middle place that when we die, like you get, you're in this, 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 like this long waiting room like you're at the ER. Right? But, 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 but this says when you die, you go into, if you are a believer, you go into the presence of the Lord. If you are not a believer, you go to the same place, this, this place, Hades, where the rich man is. All right? And, and, and so the other thing I want to add to this is that there, there is no possibility of salvation after you die. That's important. Your family members are not going to be able to pray you out. And some of us are probably like, I'm, I'm just praying. My, I'm praying my cousin is, I'm praying he go to, goes to heaven. Well, you should have been praying with him while he was alive. And I don't mean to sound harsh. I'm just painting a picture of what it says in scriptures. Number three, at the time of the rapture, the bodies of the believers will then be reunited with their spirits and their souls, and we will dwell with Christ eternally. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I don't have time to read it, but it's there. So when when the rapture happens, those who are dead in Christ will rise, and we will be united with our bodies. We'll get these glorified bodies. We'll be united with our bodies, and our, our bodies and our souls and our spirits will be united together. Number four, for the unbeliever. At judgment, they too, they too, their bodies and their spirits too will, will be united. But then they will be judged at what's called the great white throne. And after they are judged for their sins because they didn't trust in Christ, right? They, they will be then tossed into a lake of fire for eternal punishment. That's not something I made up. That's not some mean Christian talking about stuff. This is in the scriptures. This is Revelation 20, verses 12 through 13. Don't have time to read it. So, so it flies in the face of this idea that when you die in death, you're just annihilated. You just disintegrate. Like it's just, it's, it's nothing. No, 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 no. When you die, you are conscious. And, and if you are not a believer, you will, will, you will be reunited with your spirit and your soul. But then you'll be judged. And once you're judged, you'll be tossed into the lake of fire in a place of eternal punishment. And it's not temporary. It's forever. It is Forever. Lazarus says, not Lazarus, but the rich man says, I'm in agony and it's flame down here. It's, it's getting hot in here. He's not singing Nelly. Number five, heaven and hell are both real. Heaven is a place of continual comfort and peace in the presence of God. And hell is a place of continual suffering and torment. Why is this so important? 
Because decisions that we make today about who and what we trust will determine which place we will spend eternity. We have a choice. What is even more alarming in this text is that how we approach money and stewardship is an indication of where we will spend eternity. Because Lazarus did not trust in anything except God alone, he went to heaven. Lazarus was not saved because he was poor, but he's saved because he trusted in the right thing. He trusted in the right thing. He put his trust squarely on God. And what we see is that because of their decisions on earth, the two men have switched places in eternity. A man that was poor on earth is now rich in eternity. This is good news for us. So you don't have to get rich or die trying. If you trust in Christ, it's already going to be your portion. You know what's interesting in this text? Is that in all of Jesus' parables, Lazarus is the only person who's ever assigned a name. And I think that's important because his name means God has helped. What did I tell you one word that describes him at the outset? That he is helpless. But God is a helper of the helpless. If you feel like you can't get out of your own way, if you are tired and you've been running on the hamster's wheel, if you can't save yourself, God is the one who can save you. You can't help yourself. God is the one who can save you. People, we can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps because we don't have boots. We, we, are, we, have, we are spiritually dead outside of Christ, but when we are with him, he makes us alive. God is a helper of those who cannot help themselves. And so what this means for us is that we must be utterly and totally dependent on God. And so this is a call for us to examine how we use our resources. So here's what happens. Abraham in verse 24 is calling out, Father Abraham. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip his, the tip of his finger in some water and put it on my tongue to cool me. How hot does it have to be that you just want a tip of, just a, a drop of water? We're in Florida. Has a drop of water ever helped you when it's 90 degrees in July? No. This man is so miserable. If somebody just give me a little, just a little drop, it will help me. What's worth noting in this text is that he says, send Lazarus. <laughs> when he was alive, he acted like he didn't know Lazarus. But this text is revealing to us that he even knew this man's name. And still didn't help him. How sad of heart do you have to be to know the person's name, see them this often, and still don't help them? But in the role reversal, the person that he used to look down on, now he has to look up at. The person that he refused to help, now he is asking them for help. And the reality of hell is that the idea, this, this drop of water speaks to this, this misery. And let me tell you this, if you have resources and you refuse, you refuse to part with them, if you refuse to ever give in church, if you don't tithe, if you're not a generous giver, here's what I want to tell you. Money is not worth the misery. Money is not worth the misery. Here's what happens. He says, son, I can't help you. Lazarus can't come to you. 
Remember that during your life, you receive the good things just as Lazarus received the bad things. What he's saying is, because you trusted in your money, you got all that you were ever going to get. That's it for you. And so here's what we need to take away from this. Just because a person has money does not mean it's a sign of God's acceptance and approval. The prosperity gospel has taught us if somebody has money, that means that they're blessed. And so, so we, we get in this, this spiritual rat race of, of, of naming it and claiming it and speaking it and decreeing it and declaring it and hoping it and wishing it and driving up on dealerships and, and walking around seven times around cars that you cannot afford and driving in neighborhoods, calling and claiming, declaring houses are yours that you cannot afford all in the name of, of if this is what God wants me to have. But it sold us a bill of goods. And now you have a generation of Christians who grew up in these types of churches are disillusioned and are mad at the church and mad at God because it was a faulty promise to begin with. Prosperity is not a reliable gauge of somebody standing with God. Just because somebody has money doesn't mean that God is blessing them. God reigns on the just and the unjust. What money means is that God is testing this person in the area of stewardship. Wealth is not a barometer of somebody standing before God. What a person does with what they have is. And the choices that this rich man made had eternal consequences. And here's a sad thing. There was nothing to be done when he realized that it was too late. It said that a great chasm has been fixed. It almost gives the idea that a gate was a barrier between the haves and the have-nots. It's like, I can't help you. The decision that you make today has eternal consequences. The good news is that those who are secure in, are in heaven are secure. Those who are in hell are secure there too. They got the security that they always wanted. We choose now, and we choose by believing or not believing what Christ has done for us. If you're here today and you've never made a decision to trust in Christ, today is the time to make the decision. But money is not a worthy stumbling block. If you've never made the decision, today is the day. I want to close by, 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 by reading these last couple of verse, verses. 27 through 41 records his conversation where he's begging him, to go get his, go warm, send Lazarus to go warm my brothers. What I find interesting in the text, how are you in Hades barking out orders for somebody to go do something for you? <laughs> he's still self-centered. Even after he dies, he's barking out orders. Hey, go, go tell Lazarus, come get me some water. Hey, go, 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 go tell Lazarus, go talk to my brothers. Hey, that, that thing is over for you, bro. Yeah. Nobody can help you. Nobody is coming. The help has, was already sent. You, you, you had a way, but you chose not to. And so he's saying, hey, it's amazing. He now turns into this evangelist. He wants somebody to go and tell somebody about the good news about God. <laughs> right? He want, now he wants to live out the Great Commission. But his point is this, that 
hey, I got these brothers. And I'm sure they live in the lap of luxury too. But if somebody from the dead goes and tells my brothers that, that this is not the life that they want, then I'm sure they'll repent. And Abraham says, I don't think so. Because they have the most important thing they'll ever need. They have Moses, they have the law, and they have the prophets that tells them exactly what they need to know. And if they don't believe that, then a miracle won't help them. Somebody coming from the dead, won't, it won't help them. Oftentimes we think, Lord, just, just send a miracle so that my brother will, will get saved. Lord, just, just, just do a miracle so that my, my, my mom will, will trust in Jesus. God, would you just, just do a miracle so that my dad will trust in Jesus? And he's saying, even if somebody was to rise from the dead and go and tell them, if somebody's not looking for God, then it doesn't matter. Think about this. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the other Lazarus, his friend, when he raised him from the dead, some repented and believed, but others plotted to kill Lazarus and him. When Jesus himself was raised from the dead, what happened? The religious leaders gathered a group together to plot and try to squash the truth about what happened. It didn't lead them to repentance. So a miracle doesn't necessarily mean that somebody's going to turn around and repent. But what does is trusting in what God has already said in his word. The word is good enough to save souls. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to those who believe. I, 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 I trust the gospel. I trust what the word of God says because this is the only thing that can save us. One theologian said this, miracles will not convince those whose hearts are morally blind and unrepentant. So here's what Jesus says, and I'm, and I'm done. Jesus says this. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, in the Psalms must be fulfilled. These guys had the Old Testament, which, which pointed forward towards the coming Messiah. And so they had everything that they needed to be saved. They had the word of God, but the heart cannot see what it is not looking for. We oftentimes think, oh, God, if you just do this miracle and heal them, then they'll, they'll believe you. Or maybe you think, God, if you get me out of this, if you are real, you'll get me out of this financial situation and then I'll believe I'll trust you truth of the matter is God has already done the greatest miracle that he could ever do. He raised his son from the grave. That son that took on our sins on the cross, who bore our punishment. The wrath of God was poured out on him. He stood in our place, took on our sins, our transgressions on the cross for us died in our place, died the death that we deserve to die. But he was raised to life on the third day. He was raised with all power. And because he was raised, that means that you and I can be forgiven, that you and I can be like the poor man Lazarus, and that we can spend eternity with God if we trust in the free gift that's already been given to us. But the mistake that we will make is that if we put our trust in something else other than Christ, he's the only one that is trustworthy. 
And I think for us today, this is a call for us to take inventory of, of not just our finances, but every area in our lives that can be a stumbling block or a barrier for us trusting in the Lord. And so today, if you struggle with, with money, I feel you. I get it. I understand that. I, I, I get the, the struggle is real. I, I, I know what that's like. I, I, I've seen it. I've experienced it. I know what it's like to, to know, hey, I don't know how I'm going to make this happen. I don't, I don't, I, or, or I have stuff, but, but I have such a mindset because of the way that I was raised. I can't part with what I have. I can't trust God with that amount because I don't know what will happen if I do. The truth of the matter is, If you can trust him with your life, you can trust him with your finances. He is trustworthy. He's worthy of your trust. Lastly, Jesus says this in John 5, 24. Truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Let us pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.